If, uh, if you have a phone with the Bible on it, I think it'd be great if you got that out because I'm going to read through this passage uh, first. Then in little sections it'll come up the front uh, and I have a little clicker to help me do that. However, I can't multitask. So I said with great assurance to Jacob, yeah, I can do that. We'll see. Uh, so if I, if I fail up on there, it'll be on your phone. That'd be fantastic. So we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2 uh, tonight. And it's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. So if you have a phone with the Bible on it, uh, I'd, I'd really like you to open that up so you can read along, just as we have a look at it right now. Ephesians 2, chapter 1 to 10 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Would you pray with me as we have a look at this? Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that you inspired men through the ages to write these down so that we may know you. We thank you, Lord, that you give us your spirit so that we can understand you. And we thank you, Lord, that you give us your son so that we can be in relationship with you. We pray, Lord, now with confidence as we look at Ephesians 2, that you will calm our thoughts, calm our minds, open our minds, soften our hearts and let us hear what it is you want to say. May we be humble, may we repent if need be, may we see Jesus as our King, and may we bring glory and honour to you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if, like me, you ever feel that our society, or better said, the West, is in significant decline. It thinks it's thrown off the shackles of the church, it believes it's liberated women and overturned the evil rule of patriarchy. It believes it's liberating all skin colours from white oppressors. It's redefined marriage. It's created more genders you can count. Boys can now compete against girls as boys and vice versa. And it's entirely done away with the notion that within you, within your being, you might just have a problem that within us our thoughts or feelings might be distorted or wrong. Heaven forbid we say people could be sinful. Truth no longer exists 
to the extent that many people now struggle to define what a woman is. In fact, many in the West have gone so far to deny that anything you think or feel could be wrong that only a few weeks ago, you may have seen this, in trains across New York, signs were put up stating to drug users, don't be ashamed that you're using, be empowered that you're using safely. I think you could be tempted like me to say the West is very much in decline. But should we be surprised? Should we be shocked? Or should we simply see it as a continued rejection of God's order and a return to who we by birth are? Today we're looking at Ephesians 2 verse 1 to 10. And I think if Paul were alive today, he would not be shocked by what we see. In fact, I would think he would say, you should expect nothing else from those who hate God. In fact, why isn't it worse? Not only that, he would also say that we too would be exactly the same without the great work of Jesus, who redeems us from our nature. That is, this is heavy, but haters of God who are dead in sin. If you look at the outlines, you'll see there are three main points. First is what we were, second is what God did, and third is what we are now. Like I said, the beginning of this is pretty heavy, but the ending is so, so glorious. So what we were. This is outlined in verses 1 to 3, and it's important to note, particularly in the 21st century, that Paul makes no distinction here between race religion or sex. He is describing the nature of all mankind and our condition is threefold. Firstly, in verse 1 you see Paul saying, as for you, the Ephesians, but us also, you were dead in transgressions and sin. So what were we? He doesn't beat around the bush, does he? He simply says, we were spiritually dead due to our transgressions, transgressions and sins. But note the word were. It's so important and so, so good. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, which implies we no longer are in that state. The word transgress means to cross a boundary, or another translation could be to trespass or to wander off from God's set path. While sin, we all know what this means, it's to fall short of a mark, to not hit a target, And what's the target in biblical terms? It's perfection. What Paul is stating is that our spiritual deadness, I'm going to say this slowly, our spiritual deadness is due to both our passivity, that is, we haven't achieved something or we've fallen short, but also our activity, that is what we have done. We have willingly walked away from God in our actions. So not only have we missed the mark of perfection, but we've trespassed. We've knowingly and actively walked away from God. This, to me, makes it clear that we are not victims, as Jody mentioned earlier, to the doctrine of election or victims of circumstance. Rather, humanity are active participants in their rejection of God. You could actually say the only thing that I've contributed to my salvation is my rejection of it. Why? Because Paul says we were dead in transgressions and dead in sin. The effect of this rejection of God is so complete 
It's so deep within us that it renders us completely unresponsive to God, with no ability to please Him. Paul is speaking in the past tense here for Christians, but not for non-Christians. He is saying they are currently spiritually dead, and we were all like this at one stage. This deadness means we were, or are, incapable of seeing Jesus Christ for who he truly is and delighting in what we see. We are, or were, the walking dead. The wonderful theologian Colin Buchanan, he says it when he sings Isaiah 53.6, doesn't he? He says, we all like sheep, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turn to his own way. A long time before Colin uh, sang that song, there lived a man named John Eady. He was a 19th century Scottish preacher and he said this, Men without Christ and women are death walking. The beauties of holiness do not attract them in their moral insensibility nor do the miseries of hell deter them. We really are that dead. We really rejected God that much. We really are incapable of seeing how beautiful God is and unable to be frightened about the miseries of hell. If we are dead in trespasses and sin, dead means dead. I find it really confusing when people try to beat around this word and say, well, we're not really... We're not really dead. Dead means dead. Think of Lazarus in the tomb. He was dead. In fact, he was so dead that his sisters urged Jesus to stay away from the tomb because his flesh would have started to smell. He was dead dead. He was utterly incapable of rousing himself to life again. Without what? without the direct words and intervention of Jesus. That's the type of dead Paul is talking about in regards to our spiritual state. We are dead. Secondly, in verse 2, Paul states that not only were we dead in sins, but that we followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. When I talk to uh, people who don't yet know Christ, I walk away with the feeling that uh, many of them are very confident that they're determining their own actions and they're acting out of a sense of individualism or the freedom to be whatever they want to be. Paul actually says it's the complete opposite. He says those who don't love Jesus, they're following the way of Satan, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Sounds controversial, but when you think about it, Jesus himself says it. He says, you're either for me or against me. And if you're not for Jesus, then who else is left? Paul, the apostle, would say to Frank Sinatra when he sings, I did it my way. He'd say, no, you didn't, Frank. No, you didn't. You did it the way of the kingdom of the air. You did it Satan's way. It's important to note that the influence of Satan, well, it's everywhere. And we don't hear that much about it. Consider it for a moment. 
You're hard-pressed to find God honouring material on Netflix or other streaming services. Next time you're watching TV, this is as much for me, ask a simple question. Does this program reflect what the scriptures teach? Are they consistent with godly living? Have a look at social media. Or protests and demonstrations on the streets, conversations amongst colleagues, content on the internet. The influence of Satan is everywhere. And I think we like to pretend it's not. Why do I think the influence of Satan is everywhere? Because anything, anything that takes our eyes off Jesus and places our hopes elsewhere is the influence of Satan. Satan loves anything, anything that does not have God in it because he hates God. But what's his desire? To draw people away from him. 1 Peter 5 says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Doing what? Seeking someone to devour. I think as Christians, if we're not aware of the machinations and desire of Satan, then we're very much under his influence in one way or another. If we do not follow Christ, then we absolutely are under his influence. Paul is clearly saying in Ephesians here that without Christ, we fall under the rule of Satan and that he is very much at work to keep people's eyes off Jesus. Do you see this influence? Are you praying against it for yourself and, and your friends and your children? Are we actively avoiding his influence? Because Paul is saying, this is what you were. This is what you were before you knew Jesus. You followed the way of Satan, but you no longer are. Paul takes it a step further. From verse 3, he says that not only are we dead in sin, but it is in our nature. Our nature is corrupted. It's not simply our actions or influences, but it's deep within us. It was who we were that caused us to reject God. Verse 3 says this, all of us, I love that Paul puts himself in there, he's not a finger pointer, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. I'm not sure how many Disney fans there are in the room, I imagine when you were children, just like me, you thought Disney actually said Disney because the Y had a little loop on it and you watched Disney shows. However, if you've watched them, you'll know the message of all Disney programs is the same. Discover your inner self and be who you are. Don't bend to the wills and desires of others. Just be true to yourself. Trevin Waxen from the uh, Gospel Coalition, he says it like this. Disney doctrine can be summed up in a simple phrase. Be true to yourself. If you live according to this maxim, all your dreams will come true. It's the dogma that creates the drama. He then gives examples and says, Cinderella, well, she sings about her dreams of being her true inner princess. Mulan refuses to fit into cultural stereotypes. Ariel longs for a world she wasn't created for. And Aladdin, he becomes the prince he pretended to be. 
Disney movies and the rip-offs tell our kids again and again that the most important lesson in life is discover your true self, follow your heart and go wherever it leads. The problem as I see it and I think as Paul sees it is that when we are true to ourselves, we are objects of wrath. I often say to students at school when discussing this, you don't want me to be true to myself because who I am is actually not good for anybody. If I were truly, truly true to myself, I'm telling you now, I would be a terrible husband, I would be an atrocious father, I would be a self-serving friend and I would bring pain wherever I go. Sound a bit far-stretched? I can guarantee you that it's not. Because to be myself is myself. Nobody else. My true self is me. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would actually agree. And this is the doctrine of Disney, and it's what Paul affirms when he says, we were gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts before the Spirit of God was in us. We served self. I'm not sure if you considered Genesis 3 and the fall, but I like to tell students, I think Satan told a half-truth in the garden. He did not outright lie to Adam and Eve. What did he say? He said, eat of the fruit and you'll become like God. You will become like God. What did he mean? Well, you replace God as the centre of your worship and you'll place yourself there. You will be like God. You'll be the centre of your world. And what's God's response to this natural posture? Well, again, Paul doesn't hold back. Paul says God is filled with wrath. He is filled with wrath because we are so offensive in our nature. Wrath is the anger God feels when his name and word are dishonoured and we by our nature do this. John Piper, who I'm sure many of you are familiar with, he writes, our problem is just is not just in what we do, our problem is not just in what we do, but in what we are. I heard a telly preacher, sometimes I watch them, I heard a telly preacher uh, three weeks ago talk about sin and I balked at what he was saying. He referred to sin as a presence within us that acts on our lives, a presence within us. I don't think Paul refers to this as a presence. I think Paul is saying it is our nature. It is who we are in our rejection of God. You see, a presence as this man kept saying this, it removed the responsibility and turned us into victims of something forcing us to do things. Paul, however, very clearly states that it is deep within our nature. We are corrupted and without Christ, we love it. Now, quick side note. There are some who feel that the teachings of Paul don't entirely line up with the teachings of Jesus. However, Jesus agrees with this. Jesus teaches that we are deserving of God's wrath in our natural state. 
Jesus says in John 3, 38, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Not that he gets God's wrath, not that she gets God's wrath on the day of judgment, but that God's wrath remains. I know this is heavy. I know it can appear discouraging. I know that it's very much out of fashion with everything else in society, but it's so incredibly important for us to understand our position before God without our depravity. There's no need for Jesus. Without our absolute fallen nature, God's grace, person and action, it's just not that glorious. Jesus didn't die for a mostly good person. He died for a walking dead person. Jesus died for someone who didn't even know him. Jesus died for Johnny Nichols, who not only didn't know God, but who hated God, who was an enemy with him. So we are dead in our sins and incapable of responding to God. Oh, oh how depressing. We're followers of Satan pre-Christ, as we love the things of the world. And we have natures that fill God with wrath. So what does God do? What does he do? It's here, right at the depths of our despair, right at our moment of absolute helplessness that God does something. And it's here that we turn to the beautiful and good news of the gospel. Just like in verses 1 to 3, Paul sets out our condition as threefold. He also does this in 4 to 7. Firstly, from verse 4 to 5, it says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. So as I've said, we were dead in sin and dead to any inclination towards Christ. What does God do? He makes us alive with Christ. Whilst we are the dead walking, God gives us spiritual life in order that we may be with Christ. I'm not sure if you've thought about this phrase. The phrase is, but God, and it appears 45 times in the Bible. This translation doesn't use it. James Montgomery Boyce says, if, if we understand those two words, but God, they'll save your soul. Martin Lloyd-Jones goes a step further and says, these two words, but God, in them they contain the whole gospel of Christ. But God. I'm not sure if you've considered it, but the phrase, but God, was part of all our testimonies if you know and love Jesus. We were the sleeping dead. We were sleeping the sleep of death until God woke us up. I think this is very, very clear for those who were converted later in life. My granddad became a Christian when he was 65 and let me tell you, his life changed from a gambling alcoholic to a God-fearing man 
he could tell you how his life changed. He could identify the moment that God awoke him and he could identify the change that took place. But if, like me, you've grown up in the church, it can be a little less clear when you came to know Christ. However, if you really think about it, there is a point in all our lives where it really made sense. Where God opened our eyes and awoke us from our deadness and we realised just how far we fall from grace. For me, it was when I was 20. And it's here, right at the depths of our despair, that God did something, isn't it? 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 describes this something like this. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, Genesis 1, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. By his mighty power, what does God do? He gives us a spiritual life so that we can now see and savour all that God has done through Christ. God has enabled us to see Jesus in all his glory. God has opened our eyes to then delight in what we see. No longer do we satisfy the sinful desires of our hearts. No longer do we follow the ruler of the air. No longer do we serve self. Rather, we delight in Jesus and seek to be like him. Secondly, from verse 6, we who were under the power and influence of Satan, God has raised up to be in his presence, in his influence and likeness of Christ. Verse 6 says, and God raised us up with Christ. And what's he do? He seats us with Jesus in the heavenly realms. The walking dead, seated with Christ. So we've been transformed from the kingdom of Satan, where we wanted to be, to the realm of heaven with Christ. The Christian becomes a citizen of the new heavenly kingdom due to God uniting him with Christ. All that is given to Jesus, all that is given to Jesus, is given to us. Have you considered that before? We are placed next to the Son of God and we become his co-heir. Romans 8.17 affirms this and it says, Now if we are children, if we are children of God, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. My, my mind cannot begin to fathom this. A co-heir of Jesus. We receive everything that Jesus receives from God because of him. If that's true, I can't live the same anymore. I can't. I'm seated next to the eternal Jesus, the eternal Jesus, who is worthy to open the scroll. I'm seated next to the eternal Jesus, who is the author of life. I'm seated next to the eternal Jesus, and so are you if you're a Christian, who is the judge and who is worthy to receive glory and honour and power, to whom everything is given, and I am his co-heir. 
But how am I with Christ in the heavenly realm? Because let me tell you right now, it doesn't feel like it sometimes. When I'm ill or saddened or discouraged, I feel anything but in the heavenly realm. Anything but a co-heir of Christ. I think it's presented as both a present reality and a future hope. F.F. Bruce states that this statement can be best understood as a statement of God's purpose for his people, a purpose which is so sure of fulfilment that it can be spoken of as already having taken place. It is such a promise that it can be spoken of as if it has already happened. That is, yours and my being made like Christ and being seated with him is so assured because of God's character, that is, he keeps his word, that it has already happened. It's like we are already who we are becoming. What I think this means for us now is that we should endeavour to be influenced more by Christ and his presence than by Satan and the world. William Wilberforce uh, simply said that the change, the change which occurs in the Christ-knowing Christian, the change which occurs in the Christ-knowing Christian brings about this desire. The Christian desires to have constant communion with his Saviour. We long for Christ. We long for Jesus' return. We long for holiness. I grieve at my sinfulness and I look forward to heaven. I live with hope. Lastly, from verse 7, we who were deserving of wrath and God's punishment, God now shows his immeasurable riches and kindness towards us. Verse 7 says, in order, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We are no longer objects of wrath. What do we become? Objects of God's bountiful, never-ending, overflowing kindness. God desires to show his wealth of grace through showing us kindness. Why? Showing us kindness because we don't deserve it, but because he is good. Now that Paul has clearly said who we were, are you beginning to see how beautiful grace is? How wonderful grace is? And are you beginning to see that who we were brings even more glory to God? You see, if I'm pretty good, or a little good, God just needs to polish me up a little. But polishing won't do, will it? I need to be completely, completely and utterly renewed. So as new citizens of a heavenly kingdom, I think our posture should be one to stand in awe and thankfulness at all that God has done. We've gone from dead to alive, from a kingdom of Satan to a kingdom of Christ, from objects to wrath to objects of kindness. So who are we now? If this is true, 
that we were objects of wrath but now citizens of heaven? The question is as follows. How does this become a reality in my life? As I've already mentioned, on some days, this reality seems like a distant promise or a hope. Verse 8 and 9, however, declare that it is by faith we are connected to this mighty work of God. Paul says, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. Have a look at this. Gosh, he puts the boot in, doesn't he? <laughs> it, is, it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And the faith isn't even from yourself. It too is a gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The gift of God in verse 8, well, it refers to both uh, grace and faith. Passages like Acts 18 verse 27 and uh, Philippians 1.29 uh, affirm this. Philippians says, for it has been granted, faith, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. We have been granted our belief. We've been given our belief. So have faith. And as you can see, even that faith is a gift from God. So the reality we live in is that we are saved by grace through faith, which as verse 10 says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What do we do now? What, why, why are we saved? Why are we redeemed and renewed? Well, we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Not in order to receive salvation or God's saving grace, but as a sign that we already have received it. God has more works for us to do. I know of people whose opposition to becoming a Christian is they don't want to stop having fun. They see Christianity as a series of rules that stop them doing what they please. And when you consider this passage, they're bang on. They're bang on. Christianity is saying to them, well, actually, you shouldn't serve self. Their motive and drive in life is self-serving. And if we think like this, then of course, of course Christianity is going to be a killjoy. If I want to live for myself, of course it's going to be. However, if the Spirit of God has awoken us from our sleep of death and our eyes are turned to the work and beauty of Christ, then we no longer desire the things of the world. In fact, if those people's eyes were opened, they would be so enamoured with thankfulness and gratitude that they'll desire to do the good that God has prepared for them to do. Why? To bring him glory. And it's the same for you and me. We are doers of good so that God may be glorified. Now, if you're sitting here tonight and you don't know Jesus, and you're sitting there thinking, that guy's a jerk. That guy's a jerk. He's saying, he's saying I'm serving Satan. I've never done that. He's saying I'm the walking dead. I feel pretty alive. Then I encourage you to think this. Maybe your being here tonight is God opening your eyes. Maybe your being here tonight is God saying to you, live in relationship with me through my son Jesus. 
maybe. If we are citizens of heaven, who grasps just how far we have fallen from grace and actively rejected God, then what do we now do? Out of thankfulness, we do good. We no longer serve ourselves, but we serve a God who woke us from our sleep of death. I think Paul in Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 10, is trying to do two things. He's trying to empty us of our self-reliance and fill us with the wonder and awe at all God has done for us through Jesus so that we may respond appropriately. Do you see the mighty work of God? Or does this just make you angry? Do you see what Jesus has done? Or are you just annoyed that, well, maybe I can't save myself? Oh, my hope is that you see Jesus. It really is. My hope is that we'll be so, so taken by just how far we have fallen from grace that we fall at the cross and see how beautiful Jesus is. So I'm going to pray that here tonight, if you don't know Jesus, you'll do just that. And if you do know Jesus, that you'll live to bring him glory. Would you pray with me? Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we know, we know that it is hard to hear truth. And we know, Lord, that we so desperately want to earn our own salvation. We ask, Lord, that your spirit will help us to be emptied of self-reliance. We ask, Lord, that the message of the world won't be so strong that we will think we can do it and we can do it our way. And we ask, Lord, that we will be so, so captivated by the cross. We ask that you'll continue to open our eyes more and more and more and more to the beauty of Jesus and more and more and more to the grace you've shown us through him and through the kindness you have bestowed on us. We pray, Lord, that you'll take away any, any little bits of pride, take away any little bits of self-esteem, take away any little bits of hope that we have that we might just be good enough. And we pray, Lord, that we'll be so, so thankful for Jesus and his death on the cross. May we be a people who live for you. May we be a people who do good. And may we be a people who do good, not for ourselves, but for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.